It was 3 a.m., the middle of the night, and the past three years had been tumultuous ones for Mick Jones. He'd been through a divorce, um, and then he had met someone who he was now in the process of getting ready to marry. Uh, There was turmoil in the band that he was a part of, but he had come home to England, and at 3 a.m. in the middle of the night, in the quiet of the night, a song came to him as he sat at his keyboard. And thus was born the 1980s power ballad by the rock band Foreigner titled, I Wanna Know What Love Is. If you're familiar at all with this song, um, you can probably hear the chorus in your mind even right now. I wanna know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. I was tempted to sing it myself, but I decided not to. So um, you can go Google it, YouTube it, whatever, if you're not familiar with the song. But, you know, when Mick Jones, who wrote this song, when he actually told his fiance about the song, she gave him this strange look in kind of an offended voice said, what do you mean? Don't you already know what love is? right? <laughs> He's getting ready to marry her and wondering, why, why, what are you saying? You want to know what love is. Well, this fall, we've been going through a sermon series called First John, A Letter of Love. Um, and we're looking at this letter that the Apostle John wrote, which speaks a lot about love. And in today's passage, there's actually a verse where John says, this is how we know what love is. Um, so if you want to know what love is, You're in luck today. The Apostle John is going to tell us. He's going to show us today in in this passage. So my sermon title today is Love Defined. We're going to look at what John says about love in this passage, what it means to love one another, and how love is ultimately defined by Jesus Christ himself. So our text today is 1 John chapter 3. And we'll be reading verses 11 through 24, which picks up where we left off last week. So John writes, This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. 
Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Let's pray. Lord, open our ears and our hearts to your word today as you teach us what love really is, as you define it, you help define it through your word and through, through Jesus himself, God. And so we pray that you would uh, teach us, Lord, and, and that we would not just hear these things and, and learn it intellectually, but that it would change our hearts so that we would love in the way that this passage is talking about. And so shape us and mold us, change us today, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. This passage begins with a a clear statement in the first verse, verse 11, where John writes, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Pretty simple, right? We should love one another. Um, As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Jesus actually gave this very command to his disciples the night before he was crucified. He told them in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, when, when John and Jesus both talk about this command to love one another, um, their focus in the one another sense, and later on he talks about brothers, is that he's talking specifically about the love that Christians should have for one another, that brothers and sisters in Christ should love one another, love within the fellowship of believers. Um, later in, in this passage, John talks about loving our brothers. And so he, he, there he's not talking literally about your biological brothers, although that, that's included in that term, but brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the Bible, of course, talks even broader than that about loving our neighbor. And our neighbor talks, is, is referring to anybody, right? Anybody that we may run into. It could, could include anyone, not just fellow believers. In fact, Jesus even says, love your enemies. So not just love people in the body, but even love people who are your enemies. But in this passage, John's focus is on the love that should exist between fellow believers in Christ, that, that, it, that we should at least see that happening um, within the church, with, among, among believers. So as we think about this command to love one another, I want to focus on three things that we see in this passage. And so the first thing I want to look at is a failure to love. The first thing that, that John talks about in this passage is a failure to love. Uh, right after telling his readers that they should love one another, John gives an example from the Old Testament of (coughs) a failure to love. And he gives the example of Cain and Abel. So in verse 12, he says, (coughs) Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. So in verse 12, he says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Um, Now this story that, that, that John is referring to here of Cain and his brother Abel, it goes way back to the very beginning of the Bible, the the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. 
Cain and Abel were the first two sons of Adam and Eve. So they were literally the very first brothers, first brothers. And, and the older brother, Cain, he worked the soil while Abel tended the flocks. And so each brother brought an offering to God. We, we read about in Genesis 4. Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil, but, um, and then Abel brought some of the fattest portions from the firstborn of his flock. And, and the, the, the text tells us that God looked with favor on Abel's offering, but he did not look with favor on Cain's offering. Now, the text doesn't explain exactly why that was, the exact reason, but as you look at the way that the story is told, the most likely explanation is that God favored Abel's offering because Abel gave his very best to God. He gave out of the first fruits of, of the flock, the very fattest portions, while Cain apparently did not give the best to God. And so when God favored Abel's offering, this made Cain angry. Cain was furious that God would favor his younger brother's offering and not his. And so God comes to Cain, and, and we read in Genesis 4, he says to him, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must master it. So God sees that Cain is at a crossroads. He's at this moment of decision. Is he going to give in to sin? Um, he says, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to have you. It's desiring to have you. So is Cain going to give in to that sin? Or is he going to turn to God in repentance and ask for help to resist that pull towards sin? Well, sadly, Cain gave in. He let that sin come right at him. And instead of loving his younger brother, Cain's anger and jealousy led him to murder his brother. Back in our text, John asks this question. He says, and why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. See, Abel's offering um, the best of his flock to God, that was righteous. It was an act of righteousness, an act of doing what was right, giving of his best to God. And Cain was angry that God approved of Abel's righteous action. And so instead of repenting of his own action, his own action of not giving his best to God, instead what he did was he continued further down the road of evil and sin, and he let jealousy take root in his heart, and that jealousy led to anger and led to hate. And finally, his hate found its ultimate expression in murder, in killing his own brother. Now, it can be very easy to look at this example of Cain and Abel and think, I've never murdered anyone, and I don't have any plans to murder anyone, so I think I'm okay. You know, John's warning here. All right, I won't, I'm not going to be like Cain. I'm not going to kill anybody, God. No problem. But in verse 15 of our text, John says this. He says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Murder has its origin in hate. And the ultimate extension of hate into action, its ultimate result 
is going to be murder. And, and Jesus actually says something very similar in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, after stating the command, do not murder, Jesus says this. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. <clears throat> so anger or hatred toward a brother or sister in Christ is, in God's eyes, committing murder against them in your heart. Now, I wish I could say that this is not a problem among Christians. I wish I could say, oh, I don't have to say this to, to any of us, because, of course, we're never going to feel anger or, or hatred against one another. But the sad reality is that, particularly in the last couple of years, I have seen so much division and anger and, and even hatred between Christians, between believers in Christ. You know, just in the last two weeks, I heard about someone who had basically cut off all contact with his two adult siblings. And all of these siblings identify themselves as Christians. But here they are, basically saying, I don't want anything to do with you, with each other. I heard from another person who was feeling just incredibly discouraged by the disunity and animosity among a group of Christian leaders that they worked with. And just feeling discouraged, but to see this, this animosity, this disunity. I heard from someone else who, who felt so hurt by a fellow believer that they wanted this other person's plans to just fail miserably because they had been so hurt by them. Now, none of these people are part of our congregation, by the way. So don't look around and try to figure out who I'm talking about, okay? Uh, that's, it's not anyone here. The truth is, though, that we live in a culture that encourages anger and outrage and self-righteousness and being quick to criticize and condemn and rarely giving people the benefit of the doubt, rarely trying to put the best reflection or interpretation on someone's actions. In our scripture reading that, that Barry read earlier from James 1, we read there, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. But if you spend any time on social media or listening to cable news, you see the exact opposite of that verse, don't you? You see people being slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. And if we're honest, we can be just as guilty of that in our own lives as well. When we, when we start getting into it with someone else, it's hard to listen. It's easy to speak. It's easy to become angry and spit back forth at them. So John, in this, this first part of the passage, he gives this, this warning about a failure to love. And after he gives us this, this warning about what, what, what love does not look like, this, this, this failure to love, then he moves on next to, to describe something else. He describes what love looks like in the next section. And, and the bad example he gives is Cain. Well, the good example that he gives of what love looks like is none other than Jesus Christ himself. In verse 16, it reads, This is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So you want to know what love is? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus Christ laying down his life for us on the cross. That's what love looks like. Jesus himself said in John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. What does love look like? What, what is love? It is love puts the interests of the person that is, that who is loved above one's own interest. Love is willing to say no to your own life even if it means that someone else will be able to live. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He took our sin, he paid for it with his own life in order to give us eternal life. And John says that we are called to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in this same way. He says we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So what does that mean practically? Because, I mean, it's not every day that we're going to be literally called to die for a fellow believer in Christ. That doesn't happen too often, although it has happened in history. There have been Christians who have done that, laid down their life for a brother. But in the very next verse, John gives a very practical example of what this might look like. So he helps us out here, right? He says this in the next verse. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? So what John is saying here is that if you see a brother or sister in Christ who's in need in some way, and you have the ability to help them, then love means laying down your own comfort, your own time, your own resources, and choosing to give of those things to that brother or sister in need. I was reading an article this past week about a group of women who were, are in their, their 20s who had developed a deep concern about the plight of thousands of street children uh, living in a major city in a Latin American country. And so as a group, this, th th this group of women decided to move to this city and begin walking the streets and ministering to these kids and young adults as they came across them. And so I want to just read a little bit, a selection from this article. The article reads, kind of describing what these women did as they moved to this city. It says, they feed them, they clothe them, they take them to doctors when they're sick or injured, and help many of them dealing with chemical addiction, get into or return to treatment centers. They walk with young pregnant girls through the frightening journey of childbirth and beyond. They play Uno with kids in the parks and celebrate their birthdays with cakes and parties, something many of these kids have never experienced before. And as the Lord gives them opportunity, they share Jesus with them, pray with them, study the Bible with them, and connect them with good churches. And as a result, an increasing number are coming to faith in Christ and getting baptized. Now, an interesting thing happened. Government officials in that area began to take notice of what was happening with these kids and, and these women. 
And, and they saw that, that there was change happening in the lives of these kids. And, and, they were, and they were struck by how effective this was. And so these government officials went to the street kids and they asked them why they went to this, this group of women first when the government centers in their community had more resources and had more and better programs. Why were they going to this group of women rather than going to their government centers? And you know what the kids said in response? They said, because they love us. Because they love us. They felt it from these women. Verse 18 of our text says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Those kids experienced love with actions and with truth. They didn't just hear these women say, we love you, God loves you, good luck. They put their love into action, caring for those kids. Now, if, if those women were willing to move to another city in another country and love kids who weren't necessarily followers of Jesus, weren't necessarily fellow believers in Christ, then what should our response be to those who, who are our fellow believers in Christ, who live in our own city, who we might discover have a need? John says that if we fail to have compassion for a person like that, how can the love of God be in us? That's challenging words. As I was writing this sermon, I felt convicted in the middle of writing this sermon about a couple of situations of need that I'm aware of, and I sensed God in the middle of writing this sermon calling me to consider how I should maybe meet some of those needs that I'm aware of. And so I stopped writing, and I went last night and talked to Rochelle, to my wife, and said, hey, what should we do? In response, God's convicting my heart. I, I think we should talk about this and figure out how is God calling us to respond to these, these situations? You know, maybe as I'm preaching this sermon right now, maybe God is bringing to mind a person or a situation that he may be calling you to give to, 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 to show love with actions and with truth, not just with words. Earlier in the service, we heard from Hoywing about Operation Christmas Child, a ministry that our church has been a part of for many years now. Is God calling you to give to children in need in other parts of the world through that ministry? Can you, can you spare $9 to give a shoebox to a kid somewhere else? Can you give some of your time to, to find some, some toys and some supplies that might benefit some children in another part of the world that may never receive a Christmas gift normally? We heard last week about the tragic death of Pastor Jason Walker from Bay Ridge Baptist Church in our own community. Are there ways that, that God may be calling us to love and support that family, that congregation, in the midst of their need? We have a deacon fund that we, that we have here in our church that is used to give financial help to individuals and families in need who are a part of our congregation or connected to our congregation. And maybe God is calling you to give to that, 
to give generously so that that could be used to bless and benefit those who maybe you don't even know that there's a need, but, but who might approach our congregation for that. Or maybe there's an individual or a family that God has placed in your life and he's calling you to invest in them in a deeper, more sacrificial way. Maybe beyond just money, but actually to invest your time, your energy, opening up your life to them, just as Jesus did with us. What's God bringing to mind to you this morning? So we've looked at the failure to love that we see in the example of Cain, and, and then we've looked at what love looks like through the example of Jesus. And what I want to end my message with today is by looking at our assurance when we fail to love perfectly. Because we do not and we will not love perfectly. In fact, there are times when our response to a brother or sister in Christ will look a lot more like Cain than Jesus. Right? There are times when we respond with anger or pride or indifference rather than laying down our life and showing compassion. And so how do we respond when that happens? When we recognize that, that we have failed to love in this way that Jesus is calling us to love. Well, verses 19 and 20 describe that kind of situation where John says this. He says, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. See, there will be times when our hearts condemn us about our lack of love. And when that happens, when, when our hearts begin to condemn us about the ways that we failed to love our neighbor, the ways that we have responded in anger and pride and indifference that is the conviction of God's law, initially. And so we shouldn't just ignore it when we feel that conviction. But the question is, that, that John raises, is how can we set our hearts at rest in his presence when that happens? How can we have the assurance that we belong to the truth, even when we fail to keep God's command to love one another perfectly? Is there any hope? What is our assurance when we fail to love perfectly? Well, the next statement that John makes is, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. God is greater than our condemning hearts. His love and mercy is greater than our self-righteousness, our selfishness, our pride, as the hymn says, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Praise God that God's, that who God is, is greater than our broken, sinful, condemning hearts. And he knows everything, it says here too. Uh, one commentator that I was reading this past week puts it this way. He says, to be sure... He knows all our failures in love, all that our own heart finds against us. But 
He knows vastly more, namely all about our real spiritual state, that the measure of love we do have shows that we have stepped over from death into life. In verse 14, we read about that. And, And although we are as yet imperfect in love, and our own hearts penitently acknowledge it, we have been born from him and are his children. Praise God that God not only knows our sinful hearts, knows our failures to love perfectly, but he also knows who we are in Christ. That he knows all of that. He knows that we passed from death to life. He knows that we are his children. He knows that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And he knows that we're trusting in his salvation. And so this is our assurance when we fail to love perfectly, that God is greater than our sinful hearts, that he knows everything, including that we belong to him. And knowing that, being assured of that, should lead us to worship him and to love him and to love others. And verse 24 adds one other element to this, where we read this, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. So the Holy Spirit, who indwells us, reassures us that we belong to him. In fact, the Spirit's presence in our lives is a sign of that truth that he lives in us. So, brothers and sisters, when you fail to love perfectly, when you sense the Holy Spirit convicting you of that, convicting that you haven't been loving that person You've been responding in anger, that you haven't been loving that person in need. And and you hear this call to love more fully. Guess what? That's a sign that you have the Spirit of God living within you. And he's convicting you. He's, He's calling you. It's a sign that we are children of God. And so rest in that assurance and then follow the Spirit's leading. Follow him as he leads you to confess your sin and your failure to follow God fully. Follow him as he reassures you of God's forgiveness. And then follow him as he leads you to love others as Jesus has loved you. As I mentioned, the Holy Spirit did that work in my own heart. Just yesterday, as I was finishing writing the sermon, and I believe that he may be doing that same work even now, today, as you're hearing this message, those of you who may be listening to it or watching this online. And so here's my question for you to ponder. How is the Holy Spirit convicting you? How is he convicting you? How is he, what is he stirring up within you? Not about someone else, but about you, about your own life. Is he convicting you about your attitude toward a fellow brother or sister in Christ? Is he warning you, like he warned Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Don't let sin master you. Have you been quick to anger with someone recently? If the Spirit is convicting you, confess that to God. Bring it to him. Ask him to cleanse you. 
turn quickly to him and know that he is greater than your sinful heart. Or maybe the Spirit is convicting you today about your failure to love someone who is in need. Someone who you know who's in need and you have been ignoring that need. Have you been ignoring someone who God has placed in your life who he is wanting you to help in some way? Is he opening your eyes to the fact that that you really don't want to lay down your life for someone? If the Spirit is convicting you, confess it to the Lord. Ask him to cleanse you of your resistance to love like Jesus loves. And again, know that he is greater than your sinful heart. His forgiveness is greater. His mercy is greater. We will never love perfectly like Jesus does. But praise God that Jesus does love us perfectly. He loves us perfectly. He forgives us perfectly. And so hear verse 16 of our text again. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for you to save you from your failure to love perfectly. And what is our response to that good news? Verse 23 says, And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So brothers and sisters, let us believe in the name of Jesus Christ, trusting in his perfect love for us, and then let us love one another, just as Jesus Christ loved us first. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that that we do not always love in the way that you have loved us. That often, Lord, our, our hearts toward one another are filled with anger, with bitterness, with with a lack of forgiveness. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we we follow in the pattern of Cain more than in the pattern of Jesus. And forgive us, Lord, for, for moments where we see a brother or sister in need and we turn our back on them. We ignore them. We wish them well, but we're not willing to get into the messiness of actually seeking how we could actually love them with action and in truth. And so, Lord, in the ways that you have maybe brought to mind situations, people in our own lives, even this morning, we pray that we would not go away this morning forgetting what you have brought up in our hearts, but that as we have received your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness for the ways we've failed, God, that 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 grace and mercy would transform our hearts to go from this place and to love with action to follow your Spirit's leading, to lay down our lives for our brother or our sister. And so as we sing a song of response inviting you to bind us, to, to um, no, not to bind us together, but, um, but as we, we, we are reminded of the tie that does bind us together um, in, in Christ, Lord, that, uh, that this song would, would lead us to be filled with love and mercy and grace for one another and that that love would also spill out beyond just our own body to our neighbors, to everyone that you may place us before, even this week. So do that work within us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.